0: Mick Didman is squeezing through on naturalism. Zaminations there with heroicity, and here comes the and across. The Andacross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. The Andacross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but naturalism wins at a half-length of the and across in a bumping finish. Cavalieri, I think, third in front of Xavier. Zaman- Racing New South Wales didn't forget the tab highways and the midways. In the latest round of prize money increases, the weekly additions of both races will go from $100,000 to $120,000, as from September the first. The TAB highways, introduced in 2015, have been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales and country participants. Every bit as popular are the Midways, introduced as recently as July 2021 and now a primary focus of the smaller metropolitan and provincial stables. How fitting it was that the very first Midway was won by Al Miss, trained by Greg Hickman who'd been a prime mover in the creation of the concept. The Tab Highways have created tremendous interest among country owners who were constantly on the lookout for a potential highway horse. Bush trainers have something to aim for when they feel they have a progressive horse in the stable and the punters find the Tab Highways great betting mediums. Country owners and trainers had cause for a double celebration when they learned prize money for the Kosciuszko would leap from $1.3 million to $2 million. The highways and the midways and the $2 million Kosciuszko are a major part of the new look at New South Wales racing. Australian punters and racing fans are very familiar with the work of Greg Radley, the face of Sky Thoroughbred Central Saturday racing coverage and the popular Sunday morning programme Thoroughbred Weekly. He was at Darwin on Cup Day. He was at Grafton in July. He's seen at interstate meetings and at numerous major country and provincial meetings throughout the season. He fits seamlessly into the role of MC at many important racing events and functions. Greg grew up in the Hunter Valley, as the son of journalist Terry Radley and was five years of age when his dad first allowed him to tag along to the Newcastle trots and gallops. By age 12, he'd formed a friendship with 2HD race caller John McDermott who would pick the youngster up at home and take him to the races on weekends. Greg quickly learned how to set up the broadcast gear for his favourite tutor and the confines of the commentary box Became his second home. It was John McDermott who gave Greg his first opportunity to develop the skills which have taken him to the upper echelon of sports broadcasters and presenters. On leaving school, he worked at Trot Guide, the famous form publication. Later, he filled in for Kevin Thompson from time to time on 2KY trotting broadcasts. An amazing chain of events took him to 4BC in Brisbane where he gained great experience before returning to Sydney and establishing himself in several areas at 2KY, including the big sports breakfast. He even fitted in a two-year stint at 2UE. His Sky career began in 2001 and it wasn't long before his star began to rise. His life changed dramatically when TVN left the scene and Sky Thoroughbred Central was born. There are many other facets I haven't mentioned, but we'll cover those with the man himself. Good morning, Greg Radley. It's
1: lovely to hear from you, John. Lovely to talk to you.
0: Greg, you're a true blue parochial Novocastrian. Most of your working commitments are in Sydney, but you still choose to live in your hometown.
1: Yes, John I love I love Newcastle and, and the family love it there too. It's um it's still a great city. It's changed a lot, but um it's a great racing town, great sporting town and um a uh, great place to for the kids to grow up. And yeah, I don't mind the travelling Ro- roads have become so much better now. I mean, the traffic hasn't gotten any better, but the roads are getting better and mm. and I can be anywhere quite quickly as long as as long as the traffic <laughs> plays its part.
0: Yeah. Your dad, Terry, who was now 86 years of age, wasn't actually a trained journalist, but through natural talent and plenty of hard work, he finished up a giant among sports writers with the Newcastle Herald and other publications.
1: Yeah, well, how dad got his start, he, he, there was no form in those days. You had to do it yourself. There was no computer system that turned out the form guide. So dad... Uh, from oh, a long time ago would fill out the form on on cards
2: mm.
1: he'd he'd hand write the form for every horse in that area uh, particularly trotting in, in in the hunter valley and if they came from another jurisdiction he'd he'd source that form and, and add to it so out in his office there'd be uh, thousands of cards because <laughs> once they were once they retired he didn't throw them away he kept them for mm. if he had to go back and and check on the history of a horse down the track. So he was a uh, he was doing the form, he was, he was writing the form, he'd he'd send that form to the tracks and they'd print them out as race books. So he was responsible for for the race books at, at trotting meetings in the Hunter Valley, Newcastle, Maitland, and Cessnock. And he was tipping in the Herald, he was he was doing a bit of radio work. He wrote under he first rode under the Non, nom de plume of uh, Dan Patch. Mm, the, the, legendary the, the, horse, yeah. the, the legendary
0: American horse, yeah.
1: The legendary American horse. And people still call him Dan Patch to this day. Mm. And then and then a job came up at the Herald and, you know, he was basically self-taught to, to write. But he ended up doing all sports. He was doing rugby league, rugby union. He's very proud that he was the number one pigeon racing rider for the Herald as well. <laughs> was <'Cause> he? his, <laughs> oh, yes, because his father, Harry, my grandfather, mm. he used to race pigeons. Mm. And uh, I don't know, he probably wrote one story a year, but he was the official pigeon racing rider as well. Mm. But harness racing was his uh, number one sport. He'd, um, Sam North was the racing rider at the Herald in those days. And mm. if Sam would go to Melbourne, uh, dad would fill in for Sam. And we'd, we'd often go to the, the races at Musselbrook and Scone and places like that. But he mm. covered all sports. And, and that was the beauty of my childhood. I got the tag along everywhere with him. Mm. I'd be at the trots and in the, in the gallops and the football and from a very young age, and a lot of those early days were spent either in a broadcast box or a press box.
0: Mm. Greg, you cut your teeth, really, uh, on that tiny little showground track at Newcastle where they held the trots right through until about 1989 when the new track opened. Gee, it was yes. a tight little circuit. Leaders had an advantage, didn't they?
1: <laughs> well, John, it's 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 amazing now to think that they raced there, and it was such a a, a popular and strong track. It was five hundred and fifty-one meters in circumference. Yeah. Now, Harold Park was less than a half mile. I think it was seven fifty-two mm. before they built it to a half mile. The Newcastle track now is over nine hundred. Manangels fourteen hundred. Yeah. So these horses would go around a five hundred and fifty-one meter saucer. Mm. Like they did at the Melbourne showgrounds and at in South Australia. Mm. Uh, on, there's a famous story that Paleface Adios broke his hobbles mm. uh, going around Newcastle. He couldn't get round. Mm. Uh, but it was the atmosphere. You were sitting over the top, and anyone who'd been to the races at any showgrounds would know what I mean when you were sitting over the top, and it was it was like a velodrome. But a-
0: absolutely, one, yeah.
1: W- wonderful memories of, of Newcastle, and, and Maitland wasn't much bigger. It was about 600 metres around. Mm. And Cessnock, I think, was just short of a half mile. So those tracks, yeah, every weekend, I I used to put on a real tantrum if I wasn't allowed to go. Hmm. Uh, And some nights, you know, Dad would be busy and they'd be big nights and Mum would say, no, you can't go. And I'd I'd put on a rotten performance. But you'd stay at home and listen to them on on 2KY. You'd throw yourself down, would you? Oh, tappy. oh there was, it was It was like, and it was only one meeting, you know, you'd probably mm. be back there the next week, but missing one meeting was like, you know, yeah. she took everything away from me. That's all I ever wanted to do was go to the races.
0: <laughs> At that very impressionable age, you probably had a favourite harness horse or two. Can you recall a specialist around that little 550 metre track?
1: I remember one in particular, John, because Dad used to write about him a lot. His name was Penny Jack. Oh. He was a very, very popular horse in the hunter. He was trained in Newcastle, um, and he won a Newcastle Cup. And I, and I, I'm just trying to recall. He won a lot of races at the showgrounds. He won, won a lot of races at Newcastle. He might have held the record for a long time. Oh. Um, I don't know whether he – probably, he probably ventured to Harold Park a bit, but it was Newcastle where he – where he had his most success and he was a very popular pacer in the 70s. Very, very popular. It was probably about the same time that the the, the best two horses in Australia were from Newcastle and the Hunter. We had, we had Rip Van Winkle, Mm. the the, the best pacer in the land. And we had Luskin Star, Mm. who was, who was the champion two year old and about to embark on his career as well. Mm. So it was about the, about that time, um, The the Penny Jack was racing as well. Yeah. But it was, you know, and and I don't think Newcastle's produced two better horses Mm. than than Rip and and Luskin Star.
0: So Newcastle had bragging rights in the mid-1970s.
1: I reckon they did. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And what of your wonderful mum, Anne? I'm sure she learned to go with the flow a long time ago.
1: Oh, she had to because yeah. it was like a conveyor belt. There, you know, dad, dad was right into racing, and then, and then, I, I can't remember not being in love with the sport, and and, my, and then my two brothers, Tony and Michael, and then Claire, we, you know, all got involved. So she was long suffering, mm. but she, she let us, she let us do our thing, and she went, we, she went without a lot.
0: Well, brother Michael certainly inherited the harness racing bug. And for some years now, he's been the CEO of Gloucester Park Harness Racing in Perth, and he looks like he's there for keeps.
1: Yes, I don't know whether Michael will be coming home. I mean, he, he, he uh, began in the media. He worked with Gary Harley up there at 2HD, and then he, and then he got to uh, Sky Channel, and he was doing very well there. But this opportunity to, 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 to go to Perth, which was actually brought about by a family friend, John Burt, mm-hmm. who was the – he was a one-time CEO at the Newcastle Showgrounds and, and, and was a, a dynamic administrator, a wonderful administrator. He he really took Newcastle trots to another level. Uh, he invited Michael over there to be marketing manager and he's since gone on to be CEO and he loves it. And he's doing such a great job and, you know, it's it's like another country away over there in Perth, but he's, he's hmm. loving it.
0: Another brother, Tony, lives in New Zealand and he has no connection with racing.
1: Uh, he, well... He he's um uh, the the girl he married that her her father raced a very good horse with Colin Hayes years ago won a Newmarket called Red Tempo mm. and uh, and and his brother-in-law races horses I think with Roger James but no he doesn't work in the racing industry he's more in a finance role over there in Auckland but um but you know has a bet every every weekend he he was lucky enough actually he and Dad had a had a very good pacer. It was an emergency for a Miracle Mile. His, his name was Gancy a guy. Mm. Uh, he was uh, trained up in Newcastle. I think originally with Kenny Halverson, and then he went to Mark Calligan. Mm. And he won. He, he was runner up to our Savenslot in the Newcastle Mile. He, he, he almost won that race, but he was an emergency for the Miracle Mile. So Tony's and Tony's been involved in a lot of lot of horses in ownership. Mm. So he's yeah. He even though he doesn't work in the sport, he's no. He's he's he's, he's there.
0: The late great John McDermott. Who died much too soon? Mm. Took you under his wing in very early days. I know Macca had an enormous impact on your life.
1: Well, he did, and it's it's funny how things come around, John. My dad helped John McDermott get his start in the sport when when they needed a race caller at Newcastle Trots, and 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 Dad was responsible for doing the auditions uh, with Harry Randall there at. Um, at two HD and, and mm. John John got his you know his, his kickstart from Dad mm. and then John gave me my start I I mean I I went I went to John McDermott's wedding when I was nine months old mm. so that's that, I mean we <laughs> he he knew he knew mum and Dad before I was born mm. so to yeah to tag along with him to the races. Um, he used to come to our place before we'd go to Newcastle and make them trots. he'd have dinner at our place and then off we go to the trots and mm. and then um, and then he started picking me up from home on a, on a Saturday I think I was about 12 and he said you better start coming to the races on a Saturday so I'd go every Saturday to uh, every second Saturday to Broadmeadow and mm. I'd help him set up the gear and I'd spend the whole day in the in the broadcast box with him and and just just I'd, I don't know whether, I always wanted to be a race caller when I was when I was that young, but spending so much time with him, uh, that's, that's all I wanted to do. I just, you know, I, I wanted to be like him.
0: Yeah, the broadcast box fast, was, yeah, was your second I, home, wasn't
1: it? it uh, John, it, it was just a magical place. Mm. It was a magical place, you know. Here he was calling the races and I'm standing behind him. Mm. Um, at, at, as many meetings I could go, it wasn't just Newcastle. You know, we'd, we'd go to Gosford Dogs and Cessnock Dogs and Singleton Dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, I'd spend all the time there, and you just become fascinated, and you fall in love with it.
0: Mm. You tell a lovely story about the broadcast line going down one night at the Newcastle Trots when Two KY were taking the service. Sixteen-year-old Greg Radley went into rescue mode. What did you do?
1: <laughs> well, Macca, Macca's line—they couldn't get the line through, and um, there was there were no phones on racetracks then. There was. Probably a couple in the secretary's office, and there was one in the press box, which which was Dad's phone. Um, so, Macca said, "You better go round and ring them and tell them that you know everything's plugged in here, but it's not working." So, I ran I ran around. I knew the two ky number off by heart, mm-hmm. and and they said, "Well, where what, what where are they?" I said, "Well, they're, they're at the start." And, he, and and the guy on the other end said, "Well, can you call it?" And I said, "Maybe." So yeah, yeah, I, I launched into this race call yeah. from the press box. I could only see—I couldn't see them coming around the home turn. The, the press box was built in a way where I—I I couldn't see the home turn, but I could see mm. most of the track, mm. and no one could see it. There was no Sky Channel. I would made probably half of it up, mm. but I got the call. I got to call that race, and and it, and it went okay. And I and I ran back up to Macca, and I said, "I just called the race over the phone." He said, "Yeah, I know. I just heard it because he had the he had the headphones on, listening to the <laughs> to the return." Uh, and unbeknownst to me, he was obviously listening.
0: Mm. He would have been yeah, very so that, proud of you.
1: Uh, he was. He was. <laughs> and then I think that sort of got him thinking, well, we, we better, you know, he, he thought I better do the best I can to try and maybe encourage um, my career. And and he did. He did from from that moment on. Because I don't think we ever discussed me wanting to be a race caller. I think it no. was sort of not talked about. It was just I was the tag along. And mm. then all of a sudden, well, Okay. Here we go.
0: Sky Channel's Gary Harley was another one to take an interest in your progress uh, in those very early days.
1: Well, he was because everyone was like family up there. You know, Dad and Johnny McDermott and and Gary Harley and Johnny Gilmore and all the guys at the Herald and 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 the, and the wider media community. They were all friends. They were all very good friends, and Gary was a great family friend and. Um, he called a lot of the meetings up there. And once again, if, you know, if Macca wasn't there, I'd spend a lot of time with, with Harley in the broadcast box and going to these meetings. And, you know, he was as funny then as he is now. And he was just yeah. a larger than life character. I mean, he, he was, he was, a he was on TV, of course, up there. Macca was always on radio. Dad was always in the print and some radio, mm. but Harley was on TV. Mm. He was on NBN. He was, he was a big star, a big star. <laughs>
0: Uh, Good to hear. It was around this time when you took on another little job which hasn't been widely documented, and that was a stint as a track work clocker at Newcastle Racetrack.
1: Yes, I clocked there for a couple of years when I was still at school, I think in year 10, and then when I was in year 11, uh, Graeme Timbrell, there was someone, uh, I think they needed a second person, Billy Morris, who was the judge at Newcastle, and he was also the um, he was also the clocker for the papers. They needed an offside, so I'd go, I'd ride my bike. I'd get up at three thirty and ride my bike over there to a bit of a race course and, and learn how to clock the horses. And mm-hmm. um, it was made easier. A lot of the trainers had come up and say, "Look, this is so and so, and it's going, it's going to run home six hundred metres. Can you clock it?" And and mm-hmm. and they made it easier. I mean, I didn't profess to know all the horses. I couldn't you know, spot them in the dark, and I didn't know who they who they really well. Billy did. Billy said, "Oh, look! He, he's so and so about the work, and he, he had an eagle eye. But mm. that was that was good fun. I I, I picked up those little jobs uh, while I was at school, and before I could uh, start a, a career in something, I was I was clocking the horses at Broadmeadow. I was the identification steward at the dogs for a little while. I was the I was I would check the brands at, at the races at Broadmeadow. Um, when they would come into the gate you'd, in those days, you had to check both sides of the horse. Um, no microchipping or anything like that." I did a bit of um, judging um, at, the, at the dogs and the trots, you know, one of one of two or three judges up in the box, and and little jobs like that. But the clocking was, yeah, it was wonderful. You know, Max Lees was was the the big trainer with Paul Perry. Gordon Benson was there in those days. Mm. Um, it was about the time when there was a very fast mare in Newcastle, and she she would have been the fastest horse I ever clocked. Um, Uh, Son of Long Lass.
0: Terry Drayton's mare.
1: Yeah, she was Mm. a a brilliant 900-metre horse. Gee, she could fly and she'd just run time every morning. Mm. Um, But that was a lot of fun.
0: Well, you left school and you got a job at Trot Guide, as I mentioned in the introduction, a much in-demand form paper at that time with a landmark office on the corner of Bridge and Ross Streets at Forest Lodge. What are your memories of that famous old paper and that famous old building? TrotGuide went online, Greg, in two thousand and nineteen, yeah. after seventy-three years of publication.
1: Well, John, I missed out on working at Forest Lodge because when I when I got the job at TrotGuide, they just moved. Ah. I reckon in the previous week or month, and they moved to Americville. A spot press a company called spot press had bought them
2: mm.
1: and and moved the whole in operation to where their printing press was at marrickville so i never got to work at that famous building mm.
2: um,
1: which i was always dirty about um, because it was just up the road from harold park but uh ivan tilly was the editor and um jim i think jim renwick jim renwick was a writer there and he went to sportsman mm. so i got a job at trot guide wayne gallagher was the the chief writer and um, I did a 12 month stint there doing something that was, you know, apart from race calling, my dream job, mm. you know, riding about the trots. And I'd spend the, i I've got a little unit in Stanmore. I uh, used to walk to work to Marrickville. It was about, I used to probably take me half an hour to walk, maybe a little bit less. Um, and I go to Harold Park every Tuesday and Friday night and, you know, we're in the office all day putting that paper together. It was a great, great, I, I'd never, I'd never um, uh, had much to do with the, the the writing side of things up until then. Mm. But to see how they put a paper together was was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I, and, But I only did 12 months at Trot Guide. Mm.
0: No, they were happy days. You'd go to Harold Park Trot's on the Friday night in a boom era and yeah. then you'd catch the midnight train home to Newcastle for the weekend.
1: I would because I'd had to take my washing home to Mum. So I always had this dirty, great big bag trudging around. I'd, I'd get the I'd get the bus. I'd get, get to Harold Park. I'd get the bus back to Central Station, and I'd get home at some stupid hour. And Dad'd always be there to pick me up at you know one thirty or two uh, in the morning. And, and then you'd sleep in, and you'd try and catch the races during the day. But then it was off to the trots. Didn't matter mm. where it was. And I and I'd call most of those. I was I was calling two or three races at Newcastle or, or Maitland mm. on the Saturday night. So that's why I had to get home. I was I was desperate to get back because that was mm. my opportunity to call one or two races. Mm. And and you'd go anywhere, John, wouldn't you? To oh. to call a to call a race. You you would travel to the ends of the earth if it meant just getting getting a race on a 10 race program.
0: An acknowledgement for your mum and dad. I mean Terry and Anne Radley. You were spoiled rotten.
1: I was I was encouraged every step of the way. There was yeah. uh, there was never that uh, they they knew what I wanted to do and um, and they helped. I mean it was a huge help to have Dad in the position he was mm. and to have the avenues for me to, to tag along with him and and you look his his office we we had a, a back room and his office was just full of these form cards that I spoke about, uh, trotting gazettes, mm. trot guides, racetrack magazines, you name it. He was a he was a real hoarder. He had, I mean, in those days you, you couldn't you couldn't keep things on computers. It was it was all you know mm. clippings. He he would clip things up and put them in files and stuff. And mm. I'd spend hours out there reading and 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 you know researching these yeah. great horses of the past to so. You know, to have that at your fingertips, you just mm. walk out the back room, and there was this—it was, was like was. a, it was like a museum. It was he's, like a museum.
0: He's probably dispensed with a lot of it, has he, in recent years, sadly. He,
1: he did it. He did a cull. He did a cull mm. um, probably twenty years ago, but he kept a lot of it. And mm. you know, he kept he kept a lot of stuff, and of course, he always kept clippings of what I did. And um, so it was a it was wonderful to have that room. Mm. Like I said, it was like a museum.
0: Mm. Well, Greg, then came one of the most important phone calls you've ever received from Brisbane, a phone call that would change the course of your life, and it came from the late, great Wayne Wilson.
1: It did. Um, Kevin Thompson used to uh, have a, a couple of trotters in work, paces in work, and he always used to like to drive those horses. hmm and I didn't fill in for Kevin all that often. Rod Fuller and Darren Flindell did a lot of filling in. You know, if he if he had a runner at Penrith, they'd go out and call a race or just, just to let Kevin have a drive. And one night when I was a trot guide, Kevin had a horse in at Harold Park. Uh, so I was very excited. I, I got the call my first race at Harold Park. It was on a Tuesday night. Mm. And at the... At the time, I didn't realise this, and, and this is where you come in. You, you had no, you probably don't know to this day, but this is where you come in. Wayne Wilson rang me on the Thursday after hearing me call that race on the Tuesday night at Harold Park. Mm. And he said, uh, we've got a job going up here at 4BC. I heard you call at Harold Park. I think we might have a job for you because we've got a race caller called Michael Rona who's going to america to call and there's a vacancy up here if you'd like it Mm. so you taking michael rona to america opened a massive door for me in brisbane Mm. taking over his slot calling the trots and the dogs and being you know like number four caller up there Mm. so you indirectly had something to do with that
0: yeah 1990 um, greg
1: 1990 okay Mm. well he rang He rang on the Thursday morning and I was I, – the phone rang at about 8 o'clock and at about 9 or 10 o'clock, John McDermott was coming to pick me up to take me to Wyong races. Mm. Um, I I was – I changed what I was doing at Trot Guide. Instead of working five days a week there, it was there was two days where you didn't do much. So I, I went to the manager and I said, look, I'd, I'd prefer to do three days mm. and work as a casual – and that allowed me to get to more race meetings. Yeah. So it was a Thursday. I'm at Trot Guy, but it was a Thursday, and I'm going to Wyong with Macca. Mm. And I spoke to him about it all the way down, and he said, oh, you've got to go. You've got to go. He? You can't knock this yeah. back. He said, if I was your age and this came up, I, I would I would have to go. And Rabbits, who was, he was calling for Sky in those days at the Provincials.
2: That's right, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, he was calling Wyong and Dosford and, and, and mm. the thurs, mainly the Thursday meetings. And I told him about it. He said, "Well, when when are you going when have you got to get back to him?" And I said, "Well, anytime. time." I said, "You know, probably tomorrow." He said, and he and he handed me a phone. He had, he had a phone in his box. You know, one of the, the wind up phones. Yeah,
0: he, he said, said, "Ring him now."
1: Ring him now. <laughs> yeah. Ring him now.
0: I'll bet Which he did. I did. Yeah. I ringed.
1: I rang him straight back, and I took the job and mm. and spent um, two years up there working with Wayne as, a, as an understudy to Wayne, and also Terry Spargo, who's was very good to me. Mm. And I got you know Marshall Dobson was up there, and, and Damien Rayler was a great help. He was the boss of Albion Park, and yeah, yeah, it was a it was a very good time.
0: Well, eventually you returned to Newcastle, and you picked up where you left off, calling races with the support of your old mate John McDermott. Then came another surprise phone call from a former New South Wales Labor Premier.
1: Yes. Yeah, Barry Unsworth. Mm. Barry Unsworth was the boss of 2KY. He, he left politics and the Trades and Labor Council owned 2KY. And uh, I was calling once again, Macca helping me out. I came back from Brisbane. I, I left Brisbane, but I didn't come back to a job. Silliest thing I've ever done in my life. Mm. Came back to no job. So Macca would help me once again. You know giving me meetings to call and I was picking up odd jobs here and there but I I'd, I'd, I'd a bit homesick and I was I, I didn't I just didn't like being there and I wanted to come home but that left me in limbo for six months and I was calling a race meeting at, at Cessnock Trots and shadow came down the line from sky and said John Walsh at 2K ky wants you to ring him. Mm. so I rang and got invited down to meet Barry Unsworth and he said I heard you calling a race at Gosford dogs. Uh, one Tuesday night but it wasn't the calling I was that impressed with it was the interview you did with this greyhound trainer Mm. I think there was a was a night where there was only one meeting on and I think Rod Fuller and Darren Flindell might have been in the studio And to fill up time we were getting a few of the trainers up to the box and Mm. I interviewed this trainer and Barry was impressed with the interview I did he said I want you to come down and fill in for Peter Peters Mm. doing the drive show because Peter's going on holidays and I want you to do a month so all of a sudden I was back in the game again yeah and um I did it with Peter Peters' brother Tony Peters yeah. did it for did it for a month, but John unbeknownst to me, Barry Unsworth had the, had, a, had a plan in place. He was the the the, the country radio stations weren't doing racing anymore; mm-hmm. they, they were dropping off racing, and the ABC were doing less. And he had the, the Tab's best interest in mind because he had a big contract to broadcast the races for the Tab. Mm-hmm. He needed to get it out to the country areas, so he went. In the meantime, you know, this was December 92. Mm. By the start of 93, gone got and bought a transmitter at Newcastle, the old 2NX call sign 1341, mm. and he bought a call sign in Wollongong, 1314. He purchased them both. Mm. And he put racing on in Newcastle and Wollongong, and he called it Racing Radio. Mm. So after the month-long stint with filling in for Peter Peters had, had finished, I... Took up the role on Racing Radio, and while 2KY were broadcasting their normal format, Ray Warren was doing mornings nine till twelve, Peter Peters was doing drive five till seven. I was doing a separate broadcast to Newcastle and Wollongong, mm. and it was entirely racing. It was there was no sport note, just all racing. Mm. And I did two shifts. I did that for a, for a year or two, um, nine till twelve. And then come back in the afternoon and do five to seven. Oh boy, they so got
0: their pound of flesh,
1: didn't they? watch? <laughs> but it wasn't long. It wasn't long after that 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 Peter Peters left, and Barry gave me the drive show, uh, which went everywhere. It went to Sydney, and it also went on the networks mm. um, because not after he bought Newcastle and Wollongong, he started buying other little stations everywhere. And when yeah. you're travelling around New South Wales and you're listening to Two K Y or Sky Sports Radio. Mm on on those FM stations, that's because Barry Unsworth had the foresight to go out there and build this mm. entire network. and um, what a what an amazing thing that became for country people.
0: Oh, my word. Well, time rolled on. You worked yourself to death for a couple of years there. and then another opportunity came up when Ray Hadley switched from two to two GB, he actually followed Alan Jones across. Yeah, you bit the bullet and you went to two UE, who were in some disarray at the time, were they?
1: Yes, it was a, it was a funny time with with what was going on at two UE and two GB. I had uh, I the drive show had wrapped up because Twilight Greyhound Racing had taken over, and there was no room to do a sh- uh, two hour show five till seven. There was no time. Mm. It was all it was all greyhound and harness racing. Mm. Uh, you know, racing became a twenty four hour business. and so I, I was still at two kY, but I think I was doing weekends and I was doing a bit of um, Friday nights at the trots and and it wasn't until the big sports breakfast uh, Ian Trent um, came up with this idea of the big sports breakfast. So he and I started that and and it went really well for a couple of years. Um, you know, breakfast radio was something I'd never done sports broadcasting is something i'd never done but it it did have a very good following i think mainly due to the fact that souths had been kicked out of the comp so for the first two years of that show's life Mm. we become the south sydney broadcaster yeah you know trying to get them back in the comp we used to devote 80% 80% of our time talking about Souths. Mm. So the Big Sports Breakfast had built up a bit of a following. It was going well, and when Hadley left and went to 2GB, some bright spark at 2UE thought, "Oh, we'll fix this. We'll just replace Hadley with Radley. No one will know. No one will know the difference." Well, well, oh, well they did. Well, they did. Mm. Um, taking on Ray Hadley was, was was no easy task, but it was look. I learnt so much over there at TUE. It was a different stu- station to 2KY. You know, here we were, we're doing all racing and then you go to a place like TUE and there was John mm. Laws and and I think Steve Price had come over and,
2: and, mm. and
1: done... I think he replaced Jones. He came to breakfast and John Stanley was there and I got to work with Peter Bosley mm. and I got to work in the newsroom. I, I, I learnt a lot and it was... I don't regret going. No. But it, it, it certainly... It didn't last as long as I thought it would. Yeah, you, know, you also you got you call
0: some rugby during your two years at two ue, didn't you? You enjoyed yeah, that? Yeah, well,
1: I I did. I went over there because they said we're we're going to have a crack for the rugby league rights, and and we'd like you to call the rugby league as well, which I which I mm. which I wanted to do, but they never really put in a decent bid to get it. You know, mm. TGB had wrapped it up, and they kept the broadcast, and and we were doing Saturdays. We were doing a Saturday talk show, I think, with uh, I was doing it with um, Greg Alexander and Daryl Broman and Johnny Gibbs and Ray Chesterton. Mm. Um, and we couldn't compete with Hadley, he was too good, he was too strong, he was you mm. know, he's the king. But we all what well, they did get the rugby union right. So I did two seasons of calling the Super Twelve rugby
2: mm.
1: with Peter Jenkins and David Campese. And gee, we're just happy that what a game, what a game, a sport to call. Mm. It was so confusing, you know. It's, you know, and I don't think Campo knew all the rules either. <laughs> <It was> just, <laughs> when a ball would go on the ground, what's that for, Campo? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah what that was for, you know. He, he knew but how got, to play like, the game, didn't he? He sure did, though. He sure <laughs> yeah. did. But it was a, what a thrill to call alongside him. Mm. Um, so I did, yeah, two years of Super 12s, but I also got to call two Blederslow Cups mm. and, a, and a French test at, um, at Docklands Stadium. So if I if I hadn't gone there, I mean I wouldn't have got these opportunities to no no to call I, it, it was
0: two years was great well fun. spent well spent yeah
1: it really it really was it really was mm. but they yeah it was a funny station the people who got me over there uh, they they left within a week of me being there the management completely changed so mm. the two guys that were that keen on getting me there weren't were no longer there mm. so it was a, a different ball game but it was a great experience.
0: Well, well, your next adventure was a return to 2KY, which by then had been purchased by the TAB, hadn't it? And yes. You did the morning show again.
1: We did the morning show, yep. Uh, mm. The TAB The tab bought 2KY, they bought Sky, and uh, Sky were basically running us in those days. And Jeff, won. he was the man who allowed me to go to um, TUE. He was, mm. uh, he was the boss of Sky and TAB. He allowed me to go to TUE, and he and when I rang him and said, "Look, I, I want to come back," uh, he he opened me with open arms. And Shadow Shadow had a lot to do with that as well. Good. he was working behind the scenes, and we mm. had a a little secret meeting near TUE one day mm. um, to come and sound me out. And and yes, I did go back, and I did the morning show for oh, a, a few years. Mm. A few years. Now, um, Greg,
0: this was around the time. You developed your cameo of voice impressions which quickly became a hit everywhere you went. How and when did you realize you had that particular talent?
1: Well, it was it was all about mucking around. I mean, you know, I think everyone likes to take off someone. Every, everyone likes to take off someone. I can't imagine how many people have tried to take you off over the years, John. Mm. Um uh, Wayne Wilson, in between races, when we I'd be in the broadcast box with Wayne Wilson all those years ago, and Wayne had a great sense of humour, and I used to take him off in between races, and I used to have him in tears. He loved it. He loved it. He'd be standing there say, do do me again, do me again, and you know, I'd be taking him off, saying, you know, because he'd always in between races he'd be looking at the airport and he go, oh, there's another big jumbo jet about to come in. Oh, look at this landing. <laughs> look at this landing. And I'd take him off. And, and Bart Sinclair was the one who encouraged me more. I'd, 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 I'd do Ian Craig and I'd do a few others. And, and Bart got me to do a a function on the Gold Coast one night. He got me up and, and, and had me doing all these voices. And he was the one. I, the first time I ever got, got up on stage and did it was down yeah. at Kembla Grange in the old Brambles Classic hmm. meeting. But it was look, it was it was a lot it was it was mucking around, you'd have a few beers at a pub and all of a sudden you'd start taking off all these race callers. And John, <laughs> I don't think I ever nailed a voice, but you'd get their mannerisms. Oh. So, you know, Ian Craig spending so much time with Ian and watching him, you know, you know, well, matey, <laughs> you know, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the National Racing Service. Here we are at Rose Hill today. What a beautiful afternoon it is! And of course, you know, then you'd you know you'd get um, you know Kenny Calendar down Pat, and you'd uh, uh, thanks very much, John. Uh, yep, it's a great day, uh, and uh, boy, aren't the bookies, boys feeling the pain this afternoon, and then and then I I don't know whether I could ever. Ever do your voice, but you know I'd, I'd throw in things like he's got a grin on him like a carpet snake in a fowl house, and all your little one-liners, you know, the light blue Pacific Ocean rolling in under the golden sands of that immaculate beach, and and and, oh, and it sort of it, it sort of became an act. Well, it, it became was, an act.
0: It was very much like a little cabaret act in the end.
1: <laughs> it was. It was. So I got to, I got to do all the carbine clubs around Australia. I was doing uh, calcutters left, right, and centre. I was I was on the road yeah. doing these shows. I'd do the drive show um, at all these country cup meetings, and and then that night I'd go to a Calcutta and do this this little show. So it, it took me it it got me all around Australia before. Uh, in, I would go there primarily to do that yeah. and sort of take my job with me. So I'd, I'd get an invitation to say to go to, to Melbourne to do the Carbine Club, and I'd go to work and say, look, can I do the show from down there because yeah. I've been invited down to do this show? And, and they said, yeah, sure, as long as it doesn't cost us any money. Mm. <laughs> I did a lot of I did a lot of broadcasts from, from radio stations around Australia. It's primarily so I could go and do these these impersonation shows mm all around the country. And it was a lot of fun. But the only problem was, John, you all started to retire or die.
0: Now, you, so, you mentioned this to me the other day, that uh, uh, people have passed on or long retired and yeah. the new generation, the modern generation, are simply not familiar with the voices you're doing. It was Probably inevitable.
1: Not. Probably Yeah, well, that's right. And I never pursued it to take on the new young ones uh, coming along, I mean, there's a lot of voices I could just never do. I could never do Greg Miles. I could mm. never do Greg Miles. I couldn't. I couldn't do Johnny Russell. But you know, yeah, it, I, I, it got to a stage where it's had its day. I can't. I can't keep doing this. I mean, people. People hear the same show over and over again. They don't want to hear Ian Craig and, and, and Kenny and, and all these people for the rest of your life. So mm. I thought, I'll, as as you guys retired, I retired it.
0: Mm. What was your favourite voice in that era? Uh,
1: I love doing Ian Craig mm. because Ian Ian was so serious, yet if you took him off, you could make him sound to be so funny. Um, and he'd always start my routine. I'd always – I'd go from – Ian to Max Presnell, to you, to Kenny Calendar, and then to Shadow, and mm. that would that would start the routine off, and then I'd I'd blend in a lot, but mm. didn't matter where I went. And look, it, it, depending on where I was, if I was at a Greyhound function, I'd I'd spend most of the time doing Paul and Brasoli. Mm.
2: You
1: know, the green light is on, the power is through, the money out of the boxes, we're just about sit ready to go, <laughs> and. Then you, but then of course it wasn't about the race call. You'd have to, you'd be doing the De Bortley ads,
2: you know. Oh, mm, mm.
1: uh, you know, look, there's going to be a delay here. So let me tell you about De Bortley. You know, the uh, right now, Windy Peak. Now Windy Peak. There's there's the Risling, or some say Riesling. <laughs> it doesn't matter as long as you say it's De Bortley. But then you'd go to Perth and you'd do Macaulay, and you'd spend most of the time doing Macaulay because the Perth people loved him. And if you went to a Melbourne Greyhound function, you'd do Running Hawksville. So to have a favourite, I, I don't know whether I did have a favourite, but I love doing them all, and what I loved most about it, John, was that everyone I took off uh, appreciated for what it was. it was. Yeah. It was all it was all about flattery.
0: Absolutely, and Greg, you were very good at it. Uh, it. It had a huge following all over Australia, and it uh, was a chapter in your life that you must look back on with satisfaction and great pride.
1: It. Yeah, yeah, and and people to this day still ask me to do it. Um, uh, Peter Valandy's asked me to do it at an Everest function. I I, I politely declined because I didn't mm. think it'd go over that well. Mm. <laughs> but I, but I yes, I still get asked. But I can't. I just don't do it anymore. I mean, mm. I, I love mucking around and um, <laughs> you know, after a few beers, a few of them slip out. <laughs> yeah, <I'll bet laughs> it's had it's, its day, John. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Now, Greg, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast, and we'll come back with you after this. It was Alfred Lord Tennyson who said, in the spring a young man's fancy likely turns to thoughts of love. It was legendary race caller Ken Howard who said, in the spring a young man's fancy turns to horse racing. Nowadays a young lady's fancy may also turn to the track, especially on a day like Saturday August 20 when the new spring fashions will be trotted out for the first group one of the season. It's the wink stakes for the older horses over 14 100 metres worth $750,000. Co feature will be the Group 2 Silver Shadows Stakes for three year old fillies, which kicks off the Dali Princess Series, a quartet of races progressing through the Furious, the T Rose, into the Group 1 Flight Stakes on Epsom Day. Back to Wink Stakes Day, and there are also three Group 3s on the card the Show County, the Toy Show Quality, and the Premier's Cup. This is just the beginning, the first Group 1 of the season to launch a spring carnival of extraordinary depth. Saturday, August 20 for the Wink Stakes. I just looked at the clock and time's on the wing. Greg, finally the move that would see you settle into the world of satellite television. Off you go to Sky Channel. One of the highlights of your time there has been the introduction of a very popular program called off the rails with Malcolm Johnston and Corey Brown, and you absolutely loved it. It was a fun show, wasn't
1: it? It, it sure was. It was. Um, we it was when, when I moved from it wasn't my decision to go from radio to television. I was I was asked by management to go over and leave the radio show and 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 take up at Sky, uh, and the channel that was invented was Sky Racing World, the forerunner to thoroughbred central mm. and mark duclos was one of the bosses of the time and he had it in his head he wanted to do a show he didn't know what show but he wanted to do a show with me malcolm and Corey. and malcolm had done a lot of radio with me he, he came in every thursday for a couple of years and we did a, a whole three hours together once a week mm. and it was always great fun so i think that might have been the forerunner to it and he also had a soft spot for Corey, so he put the three of us together and there was no rules it just he just said we've got to make up a show here and we've got to have fun. It's got to be light entertainment. Away we went. So that's what it was. And we had a, a lot of fun. I and mean, how can you not have fun with Malcolm? You know, oh, every right. time you look at him, you laugh. Mm. And we had a great time. Corey left and went to Singapore or, or, or Hong Kong, one of mm. the two. And and we replaced him with Max Presnell. Max came in and did a quite a long stint on the show. Mm. But it, it 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 eventually it had its day. We tried, mm. we brought it back. We brought it back some years later, but it didn't work. Mm. It, you couldn't replicate what we had. Um, and we were lucky too at the time when we were doing it. Black Caviar was at the peak of the powers, um, mm. and we had a lot of guests. I couldn't count how many guests we had. Gee, we had some guests on that show. Connected it was to all, Black
0: Caviar, yeah. It, yeah,
1: it was all light-hearted mm. stuff, and we we went did a couple of shows in New Zealand as well. Mm. What we didn't realise was it was being taken in New Zealand and also South Africa, Mm. and the reports were coming in from New Zealand. More people were watching it in New Zealand than they were in Australia. Mm. So we went over there and did about three or four shows in New Zealand and and Mm. packed the place out.
0: Oh, they were big hits, I remember. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, Greg, when TVN were forced to quit the market, Sky developed the Racing Industry Channel, Sky Thoroughbred Central, and you tell me your first major race day on air was the day Vancouver won the Slipper.
1: Yes, that was the week we started. TVN, I think, finished on Kilmore Classic Day, and the following week was the Slipper. I think we did a midweek meeting at Warwick Farm. That was our first day on air, and then, yeah, our first full day to air was Vancouver's Slipper. I mean, we'd been doing the provincials and the country. I've been doing a lot of meetings at the country and provincial, but I'd I'd never done television on a Sydney metropolitan racetrack. Mm. But and it was a, a bit of a blur that day. I think we had probably too many people on the coverage. You know how sometimes management say, "Oh, we need this person, this person, this person, this person," mm. and now we're going to find something for for them all to do. Yeah, yeah. So we had a lot of people. It was very messy. I, I remember the day being messy, but mm. um. Yes, it sort of changed everything, John. It's um, things have it's been it's been wonderful since that day.
0: It was overproduced, overproduced um, well, yeah, on that yeah, day. I yeah,
1: think, I think so. I think so. But it it, it it got. I'm not saying the broadcast was bad. It's just I, my my recollection of the day was it was so it was very messy or very um, uh, there was a lot of traffic, a lot of traffic, yeah, too busy, um, a clutter. Yes, yeah, clutter. Mm. But it, it was something brand new and it was something very exciting to be to be starting because we were doing – I was working every Saturday but I was in the studio and not to be at the races was just a killer. It was a killer. There's nothing worse than being stuck in a studio covering racing and not being there. You've got to be out there. You've got to feel it. You've got to smell it. Mm. And, um, and, and that's the best part of the job that you can go to the races and be there and be part of it and, mm. and bring the colour to – to the people sitting at
0: home. Mm. You've done a million TV and radio interviews with a vast array of sportsmen and women. What are the ones that remain very close to your heart? I know you were on air at 2KY the day Sir Donald Bradman passed away in Adelaide, and your program had the news earlier than many other media outlets.
1: Mm. Yeah, yes, we were we, – we woke up – to the news that uh, Bradman had died, uh, it, it, it happened, from recollecting, John, it, it, it happened, um, it was released early that morning. Mm. So we were ringing, my producer, Tim Prentice, I, I was on air with uh, Ian Trent, it was, it was only a, a bit, probably in the first year of the Big Sports Breakfast, and we were ringing people, cricketing legends, all over the country, and they didn't know that this was the first they were hearing about mm-hmm. it. They knew he was sick. They knew that, you know, it wasn't going to be too long before we'd lose him, but we were ringing Richie Benno and Tony Gregg and all these people and, and we mm-hmm. were informing them. So we spent the whole morning talking to all these legions about mm-hmm. Sir Donald. I got to interview Costa Zul moments after he won a, a title in uh, Las Vegas. Oh, uh, You'd remember that there was a girl there who used to work at Sky who did all the boxing promotions um, when we used to broadcast the boxing, uh, Tappy.
0: Jodie Cutler. uh,
1: Jodie, and there was another girl as well. Mm. Um, Anyway, she rang me and said, I can get you Costa's you now. It was a Sunday Mm. afternoon. So I raced into the studio for radio and and we recorded an interview. So we had an interview with Costa the the Monday morning after Mm. he won a belt in Las Vegas. Mm. I did a... A very memorable interview, John, with Darby McCarthy. Um, it went it went over two parts. He was that good, mm. and he discussed his life and where he came from, and he went into great detail when they gave him life at Hamilton Races. Mm. Um, that was a very emotional interview um, with Darby. Oh, look, there's there's a lot we got to. You know, I got to interview. Dawn Fraser. We we had Dawn in the studio. We used mm. to get a guest in every Wednesday on the on the Big Sports Breakfast. I got to interview mm. Dawn Fraser. Mm. A lot of boxers, a lot of rugby league greats. Um, like you know, when, you've got me thinking now about how many people I have interviewed, John. Yeah. It's been so and across and across all the sports because the Big Sports Breakfast gave me that opportunity to you know to branch out other than racing. Mm. You were you were talking to sporting legends from all over the world, um, and as far as racing goes, well, I think the most memorable interviews when I finish will always be looking back on that period with Winks. Yes, you know, I'll, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never get to cover another horse like her. No, you and told me ever, once
0: that her final day uh, when she won the Queen Elizabeth Stakes is probably your fondest racing memory.
1: Yes, and, and it's not it's not that long ago, but there'll will mm. will never be another day to match that. And you talk about favorite interviews. I mean, what a privilege it was for me to be the first person down there to put a microphone in front of Chris Waller. Mm. You know, that's it was it was a wonderful day. That was I, I I don't know how you're gonna replicate it. Mm. Anywhere, any time. Mm. Because who's gonna do what she did?
0: Yeah. That's right 33 on the trot.
1: Yep. 26 million enough, in prize money. I was lucky I, I, the only races I didn't get to uh, to see her was when she went to Melbourne because mm. we didn't we didn't have the rights to go down there but I saw her in Brisbane and I saw and luckily enough we saw her in Sydney mm. for the majority of her career. I only got to cover Black Caviar twice. I did her two wins in Adelaide and that mm. was the only time I saw her in the flesh. That was a great regret that I didn't get to see her more. Mm. Uh, because we were covering her, but not up close. TVM was still there in those days. Yeah. So, but, but I got winks. And if I don't do anything else, if it finishes tomorrow, John, I got to do winks.
0: Away from the studio lights and the race course, you're a family man. You and your wonderful wife, Joanne, are the parents of Jake, who's 24. You're the stepdad of Ryan and Drew, who tragically left this life at just 17 years of age. And there's a small matter of three grandchildren who are united in calling you pop.
1: (laughs) That's right. Yes, Ryan, who's... um, Ryan's now, what, 32? He's got three boys. Mm. uh, Sonny Drew. And it's Sonny Drew's um, birthday today. Actually, he's six. Mm. Um, He... Yeah, and he's uh, he's... A wonderful boy and reminds Joanne so much of Drew. Mm. Um, yes, he's six. Albie, the little terror, he's the middle one. He's about to turn four. He thinks it's mm. his birthday tomorrow mm. because it's Sunny's birthday today and there's quite a few presents. So Albie's decided that it's his birthday tomorrow. He's going to be four tomorrow mm. and he wants a motorbike. Um, sadly, he's not four until November. Mm. And then... Um, the youngest, who's not quite one yet, he'll be he'll be one in September. Is Raffi. so mm. we've got Sonny, Albie, and Raffi, three boys, no <laughs> girls, no girls. <laughs> Joanne had three boys, and now she's got three grandchildren. But you know, we we spend a lot of time. They stay over at our place all the time, John, and mm. um, yeah, we've got a big party for Sonny tonight.
0: We've only got a few minutes left, Greg. You've worked with and continue to work with. Many talented co-presenters. This is a question without notice. I don't think anybody will be offended should you nominate a favorite or two.
1: Look, John, I I I love working with Ron Duffessy. He is he's such a pleasure to work with, but he's got such incredible knowledge and to have him by your side and knowing that, you know, he's not gonna let you down, he, he's going to know everything you throw at him. Um, We've got a very good team on Saturdays. Glenn Munsey, he knows everything about betting. Um, he, he's he's an important part of the team. And now the, the two girls that are coming through, Chantel Buckley and Ellie Mosley, they they form a great mm. part of that Saturday. Um, and Corey's joined us back. We're back with yeah. Corey now. Yep. So, you know, that's wonderful. So, I, look, I love working with Duff, and we've been working, would you believe we've been working together since 92, when I first started at 2KY. So we've been working together for thirty years, um, but I love getting to the country. I love working with Harley. I love working with Gary Cleesey. He he is so easy to stir up, John. He yes. is so uh, it's like it's like <laughs> where the it's like where the salmon jump off the, on the hook for you. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's
2: that oh bitchy. dear.
1: You know, and I love going to Perth and working with McCauley. He's a great friend. And even just Mm. up in Darwin, Andrew O'Toole, who who I work with once a year. Yeah. You know, we had a lot of great relationships, Mm. a lot of great relationships. But, Mm. you know, John, I got to work with Ian Craig and Kevin Thompson and Paul Embersoli and you and, you know, I, I always had great people to turn to. For, yeah. ever since I started, and it hasn't it hasn't stopped. There's now, Gregor, great people I only future. needed
0: two, you've given me 32.
1: Well, I, I was, I, I don't <laughs> want to upset anyone, John. <laughs> no.
0: Now, is it my imagination, or could I hear Shadow's voice in the background oh, there somewhere?
1: Oh, John, oh, John, John, okay, right. Um, is it you or is it me, John? What's going on? Um have you ever noticed how, how? Have you ever noticed how Shadow is always seems like he's preoccupied <laughs> with something else. <laughs> yes.
0: But it's become his style. It's become his way, oh, and uh, it's made him famous.
1: It has. It mm. has. <laughs> a remarkable man, and no one does documentaries like Graham McNeese. No he, one.
0: He's the king of the docos. He's no the king, shadow of king.
1: doubt. Yeah. No shadow of a doubt.
0: Well, Greg, that uh, mortal enemy time is snapping at our heels. It's been a great journey for you. Many challenges have been thrown at you along the way, but you've handled every one of them with great talent and true professionalism. I can't imagine there's a single regret.
1: No, none, John. I just hope it lasts a little bit longer.
0: (laughs) Mate, lovely to have you on. You don't normally do uh, interviews or podcasts or anything of that nature and uh, I'm very privileged that you've found the time to talk to me on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound, Greg Radley. Thanks for your time.
1: I couldn't say no to John Tapp.
0: It was Alfred Lord Tennyson who said in the spring a young man's fancy likely turns to thoughts of love. It was legendary race caller Ken Howard who said in the spring a young man's fancy turns to horse racing. Nowadays a young lady's fancy may also turn to the track especially on a day like Saturday August 20 when the new spring fashions will be trotted out for the first group one of the season. It's the wink stakes for the older horses over 14 metres worth $750,000. Co-feature will be the Group 2 Silver Shadow Stakes for three-year-old fillies, which kicks off the Dali Princess Series, a quartet of races progressing through the Furious, the t Rose, into the Group 1 Flight Stakes on Epsom Day. Back to Wink Stakes Day, and there are also three Group 3s on the card, the Show County, the Toy Show Quality and the Premier's Cup. This is just the beginning, the first Group 1 of the season to launch a Spring Carnival of extraordinary depth. Saturday, August 20 for the Wink Stakes.